Hello, I'm Michael Hainsworth. Don Drummond, Queen's University and fellow in residence at C.D. Howe Institute. And I'm Jillian Grattan, a critical care RN at Kingston Health Sciences Center, and I was the research assistant with Don and Duncan Sinclair. The patient wasn't in stable condition even before the pandemic hit. But COVID-19 has exacerbated the symptoms Canada's healthcare system is suffering from while shining a light on a prognosis that isn't good. That prognosis depends on the doctor delivering the news. It's either in crisis or collapsing. But why and where? And what does the way out of workforce shortages responsible for the patient's current state look like? Don and Jillian are two of the authors of Troubles in Canada's Health Workforce, and they join us for insight. Thank you for joining us. You're welcome. Uh, Don, the paper states that the shortage of workers is either because they've fallen to COVID-19, they're burned out, they're resigned, or they retired early, uh, or it's because we simply didn't have enough trained healthcare workers in the first place. How much of this is from column A and how much of it is from column B? Well, there's definitely a, a problem before pandemic hit. If we went back to 2016, 2019, and we can see a significant job vacancy rate when we did comparisons internationally, whether it was doctor, nurses, or particularly for uh, personal support workers, we have fewer per capita healthcare workers than the medians of the OECD, the developed countries. So there always was a problem, but certainly anecdotally, we heard the problems got a lot worse. And as you said, when we started thinking about doing this in January of 2022, we were hearing those words, crises even collapsing all over the place. And we had a certain set of expectations of what we were going to find when we dug into the data. And in almost every single case, that's not what we found. Jillian, is it a collapse or is it a, just a crisis? Uh, I would call it in terms of the healthcare workforce, a crisis. I would call it for the patients and the patient care, a collapse. Why so? Um, well, our healthcare workforce is just so short right now. All of the people working, myself included, are stressed every day we go to work. We feel burnt out, but at the same time, we have a job to do and and we're the kind of people who want to care for everyone. But then when it comes to our patient care, what was a one-to-one nurse-to-patient ratio is now often two, two patients, one nurse, and sometimes now even three-to-one in critical care, which is unheard of before the pandemic in our hospital. And so our patients are not getting the care that they need and that will make them better. Instead, at some points, we're just trying to keep them alive more than anything. And I think that's where I would call it a collapse because our patients are not getting what they should. When you say they're not getting what they should be getting, uh, give us further insight into what um, one nurse for three patients ultimately means on the floor at a hospital. Yeah, so I'm speaking mostly to critical care and ICU. Um, on the floors, on the the surgical and medical units, their ratios are also uh, worse than they were before the pandemic. But to the ICU, it means that um, you're in one room and you hear a ventilator in a different room and you have to drop what you're doing in that room to run and make sure that the ventilator in the other room and that patient are okay. Um, you hope that they haven't, pulled their ventilator off or pulled their breathing tube out because that just starts a spiral of things that leaves you to neglect the other two completely. Um, and 
pretty much all you're doing is you have your schedule, you have your medications you have to give, you're reacting to the things that are happening rather than proactively doing some physio and, and doing some mouth care and hoping that you can bathe all three of your patients. Those things are not happening. It's just the bare minimum and what you have to do to keep them alive. So then let's talk about the role compensation plays. Uh, Don, the report states that earnings over time have grown at almost half the pace of the rest of the workforce. Yes, that was surprising. Uh, so here, Jillian's the, the real worker here in the healthcare. I'm an economist, I look at the numbers and there's only one idea behind economists. There's a price that at some point should clear the market. and. There's many elements of the price. It's working conditions and whether you have favorable shifts and whether you have an excessive administration burden. It's not just pay, but if we look at pay, if there are these shortages, you would have expected pay to have gone up appreciably. And it hasn't in the healthcare sector, it's gone up less. And the bit of the irony, but the perversity of it, the sector within healthcare that has seen the smallest wage increases is in hospitals. And that's where we're hearing these calls of crises and collapse, much more so than the system broadly. Now, part of that, of course, Ontario always carries a 40% weight in any of the national statistics. And over the period we studied, it had that 1% salary cap on it. So that's part of it. But even in the other provinces, the wages weren't working very much. And, and speaking to the scenario that Jillian played out, Hospitals, through their union agreements, pretty much had to treat and compensate people the same, no matter where they're working. So what we suspect, but we don't have the data to prove it, is we have a shift within nurses, for example, within hospitals, out of emergency, out of ICOs, and out of operating rooms into other areas. And they probably didn't suffer a lower pay from doing that, probably got more favorable shift work. And hospitals told us that they felt shackled in the ability to change those working conditions to attract and train them. So uh, certainly when you come to personal support workers, we know rock bottom pay, very dangerous in some cases, health-wise and, and just physical safety-wise, dangerous, a feeling of a lack of respect. People have got a schedule, they're supposed to be six places uh, in a day and they're an hour drive apart and like how the heck are we doing that? So a lot of the things in the conditions and not responding to help the attraction and increase the retention. Um, I mean, in Ontario, big thing up until now was Bill 124, uh, and I, I guess that's just been repealed. I hear there's a plan to appeal the it being repealed, but um, on one hand, it's not really the money. We all just want to work in a safe place. We want to work somewhere that, you know, stress comes along with working in the ICU and working in the hospital, but and and working in home care, I guess, as well. But um, but it it's just not what it used to be. And that's what we want to go back to more than we want increased compensation. So the solution isn't just to pay healthcare workers more. No, I don't think in the case of nurses, and I, and I think quite likely not in the case of physicians either. What you increasingly hear from family physicians is they estimate they're spending about 30% of their time on administrative work. That's not what they signed up for all those years of medical training. They signed up to help people and here they're filling out form after form after form. So I suspect if somebody made a concerted effort to listen to them and say, what do you need to attract you into the field, keep you in the field, keep you satisfied in the field? Pay may well come up, but it certainly wouldn't be the only thing. It may not even be the most important element. So where is the demand for staff the greatest? Well, let's look at the, the three different areas. Uh, 
I don't think we have a huge shortage of physicians in total, but we definitely have two problem areas, and that's family medicine and psychiatry. And both are showing up right now, high vacancies, difficulty of getting registered. We have about 5 million Canadians that are not registered with a primary caregiver. Sometimes that's with a nurse practitioner, but most of us they can't get with a family of medicine. But if, if we put in a, a pull out our crystal ball and look into the future, that does not look pretty. Um, you always like something as Simri, 51, 41, 31. So 51% of, of physicians today are in family medicine. 41% of the current graduating class has chosen family medicine, and 31% of the incoming class has chosen family medicine. Let's just guess what's gonna to happen to the 5 million Canadians who are not registered. That has to get worse. So there's a big problem there. Pay may be part of it, but somebody's gotta look at, part of it, see, you know, to get into a medical school, you gotta have a 99% average. Trust me, having tried this, you could not get a 99% from studying English literature you study the SEM subjects where there is believed to be a right and wrong answer. It's less subjective. We, we need to change those kinds of conditions as well. Nurses, nurses, we have to be very careful because the supply of nurses has actually been increasing significantly despite these apparent shortages. But we've calculated somewhere between half and all of the increases in nurses in 2020 and 2021 came from formerly retired nurses coming back. Well, let's think about that in our crystal ball. If you've already retired once, are you going to stay back in nursing for a long time? Probably not, right? You're going to stay for a couple of years and then you're going to go. We are certifying at a much faster clip the foreign trained nurses, but there's a catch there. In almost every case, somebody who's now certified as a foreign trained nurse had been a personal support worker. Just think about it. What do you do? When you're trained from a foreign country and you're not allowed to practice a nurse in Canada, you tend to be a personal support worker. So you fill one basket, but you're an empty in another one. And then the personal support workers, we are increasing the number of spots and colleges for them, but it's like running on a treadmill where it just keeps going faster and faster. About 40% of them don't stay in for one job. 50% of them are gone in two years. Unless we can change those working conditions and improve their attention, there's no amount of graduates you can have from the colleges that's going to satisfy that need. And also keep in mind, we're going to double the 75 plus age cohort in the next 15 years. Where are the workers that are going to support them? We're, we're not creating that whatsoever. Jillian, does that jive with your experience, the idea that, yes, we've seen an increase in the supply of nurses, but the demand is far outstripping that supply? Yeah, the patients we work with now are much sicker than they were before. Um, I would say, I mean, we have the same number of beds where I work, um, but it's... <laughs> it's hard to say, to be honest. I think what what more it is now is a revolving door. We have this somewhat of the same demand in the hospital. We just have people coming in and people going out, if not at the same pace, then people leaving faster than they're coming in. And it takes time to train a new nurse. And when you have more nurses leaving, that creates gaps. But at the same time, you have people retiring early because they're just burnt out. You have, you're losing seasoned nurses to other jobs that are less stressful. Um, and that creates less people to train these new nurses coming in. 
and personally with my experience training new nurses, um, it takes a lot, a lot of effort, but more recently with the increased workload, you don't have the time to stand at the bedside and tell them, this is what we need to look for, for this condition. This is why I'm doing this. This is why I'm doing that. Um, instead it's just, this is what we do and this is why we're doing it and move on to the next thing. So even the people coming in are not getting the in-depth knowledge and training that they should get, especially in such a critical care environment and such sick patients. Don, uh, personal support workers uh, often cited as a means of reducing the stress load on Canada's healthcare system. How do we make this a more appealing role? Well, definitely part of it is pay, but I think it's respect as well. I mean, it comes to that whole thing, Canada versus Europe. Uh, why do they have a lot more skilled tradespeople we do is because they think that that's honorable and it does have good pay. Um, we don't tend to think it about the same way and we tend to disproportionately have recent immigrants because they don't have a lot of other job opportunities as opposed to being this the field you want. Definitely pay would be it. Definitely creating more safe environments, both medically, as, as we know, all, all 80% of the deaths uh, in the first year from COVID came from the elderly and long-term care. And it wasn't just the people, obviously the people that are working there, we didn't create those safe conditions. So it's, it's really a change of it. Of course, we have to completely change the directions for the personal support workers. We still have, you know, you talk about the loads on the hospitals, right through this whole thing, 17% of a hospital beds or what we call alternate level care. These are people who are not supposed to be in the hospital in the first place. And they're almost all elderly. They're not getting proper treatment, but they're taking 17% of the whole of the beds. And that's because there's nowhere in long-term care to get them. But then you got to strip one more layer of that. They don't want to be in long-term care. They want to be in their home with support as necessary or be in a community. And we're not offering it up. Nobody has realized, nobody's sticking up their hand and said, I want to be shipped off to a long-term care facility. I want to live in my home independently as long as I can. If I'm not independent, I want the supports I need. And if that's not possible, what I want in a community base, when are we going to listen to what the people want? And you know what? From an economist, okay, I'll, I'm guilty of the bean counter. It's cheaper to do that. It's a lot cheaper to provide the home-based care and the community-based care as it is. But you know, coming back with Jillian, here's the frustration of economists, because right since the beginning of this, I'm trying to find the data that match what she's seeing about in the hospital. With my lack of training, they won't list, let me work in the hospital. It's probably not a, a good idea to try that. So I have to try to listen to this. And, you know, you were speaking about the demand. Well, I've only got certain measures I can look at. I can look at hospitalizations. It actually went down in 2020 and just came back to the pre-pandemic level in 2021. COVID-related up, but non-COVID-related down. The social distancing, the masks, the protocols, people not going out, at least initially, led to fewer sick people. So that doesn't, okay, then you say, well, people stayed in the hospital. We got hospital days. Those are just around where they were in 2021. But there's one really interesting statistic that came from a survey, the Ontario Hospital, hospital Association. Employment in Ontario hospitals went up 10% from March 2020 to March 2021. And I would love to know why. Some of it's the additional safety uh, protocols, the additional cleaning, some of it's support for the immunizations, but what else is going on? And our physicians, well, even, we can measure physicians' activities as well, the number of people they say, the number of interactions they have with, and those have not gone up as well. So demand and supply, supply has actually not gone down, and demand doesn't seem to have gone up, That and yet we do have these shortages, so what gives? 
Well, to your point about the, the data, among your recommendations, your report calls for a governance structure at the provincial level to better collect data. What, what do we need to collect to make better policy decisions that we aren't collecting now beyond what you've already told us? Well, the data aren't timely. So when we tried to figure out, fill in these blanks, what reconciles with what Jillian and others are seeing in the hospitals, what the data are saying, we don't know. Other than employment, which has continued to increase in 2022, we don't know anything about 2022. We just barely, a couple of weeks ago, got the number of certified nurses and the number of doctors for 2021, uh, the hospitalizations and all that. That's all old data. So things may well have changed in 2022. And you know what? We won't know until December 2023. That's way too late. As we were going, the Canadian Institute of Health Information has wonderful sources of data and the people are very helpful there to doing it. But as we are going through all the spreadsheets, Every time we thought we had a story, we looked further and we realized there was some missing data or something that was just plain wonky, like thousands of workers in some category just disappeared in one month from some province. Clearly, they changed definitions or they didn't file. They don't use standardized definitions. They'll skip one year, they'll come back and next year. So now you've got two years that have got a growth rate or different. It may not be measured in the same as Quebec as it is in Manitoba. Somebody needs to standardize and fill that in. And... You know, there's efforts being made at that point, but we need to go much further. And then we need to peer inside. You know, one of the stories, this this really became detective work. Forget about economics and nursing and stuff. We kept getting handed all these clues, what's really gone on. It was workers are leaving the workforce. Well, no, they're actually not. Uh, the province has surveyed that, and the percentage of people who are trained in healthcare, working in healthcare, stayed around 90%. And then it was they're working, they're leaving direct care. No, that didn't happen either. Then it was absenteeism of sort, and no, that didn't happen either. And then it's shifting to part-time, and the data doesn't show that. Now, maybe there's a problem with the data, and that's one thing we've got to look at, but we need to have be able to peer inside that direct care. Is there been a movement, what we call the heavy lifting, the, the ICUs, the emergency rooms, and the operating, have people shifted out of there into somebody else? You can't just take a nurse, generally trained, and have her do what Jillian's doing. That's a specialized training with a specialized experience. Very hard in the short term to change for that. But who's looking and thinking we're going to have a shortage and we better start doing that shortage? Frankly, nobody is. The provinces aren't doing it and the medical schools aren't doing it. So you call for gatekeepers for Canada's healthcare system by accelerating the rate of development and expansion of the integrated care systems. What does that look like? Well, first of all, I just I, I, what I find intriguing about this whole thing is we the aging of the population is simultaneously the most predictable public policy you can ever imagine, and it's the one the least bit has been done to anticipate. We have known since about 1950 that this day was going to come. It's just simple math of adding the years onto people's age. We have known there was going to be this doubling of the 75 cohort, and nothing has been done to prepare for that. When governments do say they're going to do something, it's instinctively we will ask X thousand number of beds. They never tell you that Y thousand are coming out of commission. Those places that had four people in a room with a sheet between them are not going to be in commission anymore. So the creation of the beds they're talking about is probably not even a net increase. And then that's not what people want. Nobody is going back and say, we need to build this home care system. We need to build the community and we need the workers who are going to serve that. No one is looking at this. Only 31% of family uh, of, of physicians are choosing family medicine. This speaks to a disaster coming up. 
And then obviously nurse practitioners are going to take much more of the load. And they've actually been increasing at a fairly good clip, but there's only about 6,000 nurse practitioners. It's tiny relative to the overall workforce. And nobody's really looking at the limits of how much of the gap that they can play in. And nobody's really looking at the full scope of practices. Um, nurses, I think, make a credible case that they can do about 70% of what physicians do, but nobody's really exploiting that. And then others can do some aspect of what nurses do. But who looks at that? Who's responsible for that? Really, nobody is. Jillian, as part of the, the recommendations, essentially, we're looking to import a solution to the workforce problem through hiring from outside the country. When you hear that, what, what do you see as some of the, the hurdles that need to be overcome to ensure that that's a success? Um, well, training differs all over the world for for uh, nursing, but what the CNO has done to to try to bring people and bring them into our workforce, they have a good plan for it, albeit it was slower previously. Um, now they have uh, standardized testing, I believe, where it, they also look at the country you came from, the school you went to, um, and then now they have shifts where you are with them. I don't know the correct term, if it's mentor or preceptor, that you're working directly in the hospital side by side with someone to assess your uh, competency and language skills. So I, I suppose that's how they've managed to accelerate the number that they're training. Well, I, I find what's happening with the colleges of nursing and the foreign trade is, is fascinating. I, I sometimes think that they need to hire a public relations expert. Um, is the glass half full or the glass half empty? It was only a few years ago, let's say 2013 in Ontario, they were only certifying a couple of hundred foreign trade nurses per year. They're on track to do about 6,000 this year. So they got a backlog of about 15,000. So the glass half empty, you still got a, ba a big backlog and ideally you do more 6,000, but come on, like you've gone from doing a couple of hundred to on track to doing something like 6,000 in 2022. That's a phenomenal increase. And of course, it's a temptation to rubber stamp them, but we got standards. You can't have problems of people don't have the same training and haven't received as long training. It's not as sophisticated. You've got to fill that gap. So I, I'm more inclined. I think they're doing a pretty good job and I hope they can continue it in it. And, and it'll be really timely over the next couple of years because we had something like 12,000 nurses came back in 2021 for retirement. They're going to be gone in the next couple of years. Who's going to fill that? And you can increase the spots in the university and the colleges, but you can't ramp it up that quickly to fill that gap. So we're going to have to keep leaning on that foreign trade. And of course, you know, the government has set a target of 500,000 new permanent residents. So let's hope a good number of those are coming with medical backgrounds as well. There's so much more in this report um, to, to discuss, but let me ask each of you this, and, and Jillian, we'll start with you. If, if there's one thing in your report that you want the viewer to know, what would it be? It would be that there really needs to be more focus on the shortage that we have, the shortages are going to get worse, and how are we going to fix that? Don? Yeah, it's so complicated and it gets diluted. So my primary focus, let's fix the primary care problem. Uh, this is uh, all being spirited on my part, but I'm kind of happy that the Canadian, you know, the quote the old movie, they're as mad as hell and they're not going to take it anymore. Part of our problem is a complacent Canadian public, and we've had a mediocre healthcare system for a long time, and they've kind of cherished it because they view it doesn't have the downsides of Americans, but it's not working very well. We spend a lot of money. The problems are going to be bigger. Of all the problems, it's lack of access to primary care that's the biggest problem. 
And I would like to see our governments collectively, nurses association, doctors association, fix that and fix it fairly quickly. And I, I think there are ways that you can do it. Some of them to fix it permanently are going to take a long time, but I think there's things that you can implement over the next couple of years that will make the situation a lot better. And that should be the priority. Don, Jillian, thank you for your time and insight. You're welcome. Thank you. For an in-depth look at the issues, read The Troubles in Canada's Health Workforce, The Why, The Where, and The Way Out of Shortages by Don Drummond, Jillian Grattan, and Duncan Sinclair, Professor Emeritus at the School of Medicine at Queen's University. You can get to that at cdhow.org. Coming to the C.D. Howe Institute in the new year, Stan Magison, the chair and CEO of the Alberta Securities Commission. On January 18th, we'll host a roundtable luncheon at the Ranchman's Club. February 7th, we'll discuss global investment trends for 2023 with McKinsey and Company and the Ontario Municipal Employees Retirement System in Toronto. Also at the Young Street headquarters, David L. Cohen, the U.S. Ambassador to Canada, will join us for a roundtable luncheon February 9th. I'm Michael Hainsworth. Thanks for joining us. You've been listening to the C.D. Howe Institute podcast with Michael Hainsworth. Subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. The C.D. Howe Institute is an independent, not-for-profit research institute whose mission is to raise living standards by fostering economically sound public policies. The Institute is widely considered to be Canada's most influential think tank and a trusted source of essential policy intelligence, distinguished by nonpartisan, evidence-based research and subject to definitive expert review. Visit cdhow.org and follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you.